Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, Alex Braun discusses planetary geophysics highlighted in October's The Leading Edge. Believe it or not, this is the first special section dedicated to planetary geophysics in the 40-year history of The Leading Edge. And it's timely considering the many international activities evolving rapidly toward exploration of the Moon, Mars, and other planets, and the availability of exploration geophysics expertise within geophysical communities. In this conversation, Alex highlights the differences geophysicists should consider when applying their skills to planetary geophysics, the type of tools and techniques that work well on other planets, and the role of Earth analog sites in exploring viable geophysical techniques. He also explains why Jurassic Park gives a poor impression of geophysics and how geophysical techniques on the moon helped turtles on Earth. This fun and engaging conversation will offer insight to scientists working in any environment. Dr. Alex Braun is a professor of geophysics in the Department of Geological Sciences and Geological Engineering and cross-appointed to the Department of Physics, Engineering Physics, and Astronomy at Queen's University. And now my conversation with Alex Braun. Well, this is the first special section in the Leading Edge that's been dedicated to planetary geophysics in the 40-year history of, of the Leading Edge. So why is now the right time to include this special section topic? It is a difficult question. And I, I wondered myself how it happened that so many new companies started new endeavors like Virgin Origin, Amazon, all of those companies uh, just started simultaneously. And maybe it was a little bit of time because we all know what happens on Earth. We're losing resources which are critical for our survival, including water, uh, but also energy. And uh, humans always have explored for alternatives, and these alternatives might be in space. On the moon, we already know there is water available. On Mars, well, this is maybe not in the, in the next uh, 20 years, uh, but asteroids are hosting minerals, which we um, really need in order to continue our technical uh, development, our economy. So I think humans found a new positive target where everybody agrees, yes, let's go to space, uh, rather than uh, sitting on Earth and, and waiting for doomsday. So there is a lot of activity in planetary geophysics right now. For a geophysicist, what differences do they need to consider when they're looking to apply their skills to planetary geophysics versus the Earth? So the geophysicist today is working with uh, high tech in the field, in the lab, uh, in the office, and uh, when communicating the results to um, stakeholders and, and clients. If you are planning to work on planetary uh, in, in planetary geophysics, it's, it will be a little different because, of course, you will still use high-tech, but the instrumentation dedicated to geophysical surveys is, is, is not providing you with this enormous amount of observations of data, which then you can process with a lot of sophistication. Uh, you will have very little data. As a matter of fact, uh, the Apollo 17 mission 
which uh, was the last mission which deployed a human on the moon, collected gravity data at about 20-something locations. And if we now plan for a gravity survey on an asteroid or the moon, again, we will not have many more stations. So we need to really carefully examine how much can we uh, obtain from these little number of observations, from this little amount of data. So we have to kind of, as geophysicists, go back uh, in time and think about every location we observe really matters. So the planning and the optimization of a survey before you conduct it and testing all the limitations will be critical uh, because we can't just uh, go back the following week as in a, in a survey in Texas or in Alaska. We, we could just extend our survey and pay overtime, not on the moon or on Mars. So we need to be very careful in designing surveys. But again, we need to design these surveys in concert with geologists, with geochemists, with resource experts, with the engineers which operate rovers and landers. Without that, we won't succeed. So it will be one of those truly, everybody mentions cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary. We do this now for 20 years, but this is really cross and interdisciplinary. There is no excuse. You, you cannot do this without expertise in every aspect of the problem. So geophysicists traditionally are very broad-minded scientists. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why geophysicists are already heavily involved in, in space missions and space exploration, but in the future will be even more involved in, in, this, in space exploration, um, this new era which we're entering right now. What qualities of geophysical tools and technology work well on planetary exploration missions? Yes, in general, I would always prefer a method which is passive because it doesn't require us to bring our signal to the moon or to Mars. This is a, a huge advantage. So we can't bring a vibro-sized truck to create vibrations uh, to Mars, um, and we shouldn't bring dynamite to Mars. So if we can find a geophysical field which is passive, but freely provided to us, for example, the gravity field, the magnetic field, or earthquakes, or Marsquakes, or moonquakes, then these would be the signals we're aiming for first. On the other hand, there's limitations because we don't have a magnetic field on all the planets, except the gas planets, they have enormous magnetic fields, but they are a little bit out of our space exploration objective right now. Then there is the electromagnetic or uh, radar um, methods, which require that we bring our signals with us, but those signals are actually not hard to, to generate. So a ground penetrating radar has, let's say, the size of a watermelon uh, instrument and uh, can be deployed on, on many uh, types of rovers. Uh, and we would create our own signal. So uh, the qualities of a geophysicist lies in the fact that you think about, this is our target, uh, what type of signal could we send to the target to receive enough feedback to understand what the target is made of and where the target is located? If we can answer those two questions, then we did our job. 
You know, one of the the neat things I like how you're talking about. You know, you can't just uh, add overtime and and go go get more results. You know, in, in these planetary explorations, but there are Earth analog sites that are exploring viable geophysical tools and techniques. So, what what kind of role do these type of working on these challenges on Earth have in exploring what can be vi- viable geophysical techniques and tools? They're quite important because. They allow us to play, uh, to test things, and to play out a concept, uh, to to see if our strategy would work on Earth. We, of course, do not have the same environment as on on planets or moons. Uh, Our gravity field is different. We have a magnetic field. We have an atmosphere. We have a lot of available water uh, around the surface. All of those things alter our geophysical material parameters, and they alter our signals. So sometimes it's difficult to scale an Earth analog survey to a survey on the moon. But through theoretical geophysics and numerical modeling, we can try to make this scale independent or at least predict how it would function uh, under lunar or Martian conditions. But I think the most important aspect is that Earth analogs provide us the test ground to bring teams together, which consist of multidisciplinary scientists, which look at, uh, for example, a lava tube on Lanzarote in the Canary Islands with different eyes. There's an astrobiologist. They look at the interior of that lava tube and wonder how it was formed and how it was evolving through time. A geophysicist would just look at what is the dimension of this lava tube, how deep is it, and how can I measure it with a gravimeter or a GPR. But when we're all on this analog site together, we can integrate our knowledge, we can see with our collaborators' eyes and come up with new concepts, new ideas on how to measure the existence of a lava tube in this case, or the size, the dimension, its depths, it is, it is critical to have those type of targets before we, we launch hundreds of millions of dollar missions to eventually, oh, we forgot one thing. Uh, so unfortunately, this experiment failed. It's not an option. We have to be extremely rigorous, and that's why we need Earth analog sites to go a little uh, further than what we normally would do before we go into the field on Earth. I might be way off on this, I'm not sure, but are there some common misperceptions of planetary geophysics to geoscientists in general? Well, I think it's the same, uh, the same issues we, we face for terrestrial geophysics. A lot of, of uh, geoscientists uh, or uh, people in oil and gas uh, and, the, and the public thinks, well, these are called physicists in a way, so whatever they say must be true, right? And we know we are never right. Uh, geophysics is not a discipline of uh, um, 100% right or 100% wrong. The misperception is that you just bring your machine um, you, you measure something and uh, you interpret or process, uh, and then you don't even need to interpret. The result will be in front of your eyes on a map, on an image. 
I always refer students to the first Jurassic Park movie where they have a, a thumper which creates seismic sources. And then they call the instrument they use to measure a, a GPR, ground penetrating radar. So that doesn't mix together. So that was wrong. But on, the, on top of it, they illuminate a skeleton of a, of a dinosaur in the subsurface on their screen, which is another impossible thing to do because we don't have this resolution. So that a lot of misconceptions are you have a machine and that's the only thing you need to, to find this, right? It's a, uh, the public often thinks we're finders. We, we deploy this instrument and it will beep when we found the gold. The problem is, is that it's much more complicated than that. And this is the most difficult message to convey. If we would tell the public we're always wrong, we lose, of course, trust. And if we apply this to planetary exploration um, and we have the expectation that you send a geophysicist up there to walk around with an instrument, we process the data and we know where the water ice is and how much there is on the moon. We can't give this perception. We, we have to be realistic. For example, in medical uh, imaging, we can use our source and our receiver and move it all around the body. So we have all perspectives. In geophysics, we always have only one perspective from the surface. And that limits our ability to resolve our targets in both location, geometry, and material parameters. So when we compare with medical imaging, geophysical imaging is an order of magnitude more complicated, more complex. You know, for a geophysicist listening to this, maybe not too familiar with planetary geophysics, what value, what would they gain from just having a general better understanding of planetary geophysics and what it entails? Yes, and that is that is one of the most spectacular outcomes of this uh, special section on planetary geophysics. All of those uh, manuscripts which have been published uh, in this October issue address exactly what you're asking for. They address principles which we need to observe before we deploy geophysical methods on an, in an unknown territory, such as planets and moons and asteroids. For example, we might need to create our own signal. We can't just take off-the-shelf um, signal generators up there. And there was there's one paper by Lorenzo and others which creates a signal in the wheel of a rover. And that signal then, it's a vibration in principle, uh, which can um, start resonating with the wheel, the rover, but also the subsurface. And if we measure those resonant frequencies coming back from, from the lunar surface or the Martian surface, subsurface, then we can uh, conclude about the structure which may have resonated with this frequency. So we, this, is, this was a good example of trying to imagine what type of instrumentation and how do we get our signal into the target. Um, another example was a single receiver function, a single station receiver function. Uh, so it's a seismic uh, method, which is never used at a, on Earth with a single station. 
then it, it doesn't make sense. There's better methods to do that, or you use a network and then you get a, a, at least a two-dimensional or three-dimensional uh, image of the subsurface. But on the moon or on Mars, we might not have the, the luxury of having more than one station, more, more than one seismometer or geophone. We might have it only deployed at the lander. We might not have it on the rover. And if it's on the rover, it will be deployed at one station. So we might, might not have a seismic network on those planets. So how can we now exploit a single station to learn something about that planet? This is a very fundamental question. We have to reduce of what we are used we, we're used to hundreds to thousands of geophones or electrodes in a resistivity survey. We can't do this. We can't deploy it. So we go back in time to maybe yeah, 100 years ago when we, when we only could handle uh, a handful of sensors uh, in concert. So these papers have shown how we have to step back and rethink the entire method and how it does apply to a new target with new parameters, which sometimes are beneficial to us, sometimes not, but also to a target to which we cannot bring everything we're used to. And that, that's a challenge, which I think every geophysicist who is planning for a field campaign can appreciate. You know, if a, a geophysicist reads this special section and is very intrigued by by this work, how would, you know, what would be a next step in applying their skills to planetary geophysics? It is not a big step. For myself, uh, I'm not a planetary scientist. I would never call myself this. But at the end, everybody who works in this field is originally a geophysicist with one special specialization or another. It's just a different scale and a different target. We handle this very well in the geophysical community. So uh, last week, we used the same technique we proposed for a rover mission to the moon in, uh, in, in Mohawk territory around Kingston to find turtle nests in the ground before they stripped the road. So from the moon to a turtle nest seems very far-fetched, but it's the same method. It's the same students working on it. And it's the same principle. It's just a different scale. And I think in exploration geophysics, we're all well aware of this. We can use our methods in a lot of places and not just for the topic which our company or employer is making the profits. Lastly here, Alex, what principle teaching or point of view has helped you succeed in your field? I was fortunate enough to be trained in physics. I thought that the physics aspect was the most important for my career because I could jump from one valley to the bottom of the ocean, to an asteroid, to uh, an unmarked grave. So any target we see not because of the geology it entails. We can see it because of the physics of that system. What would happen if I send this geophysical signal into this target, what would I get back? And what type of environmental parameters do I need to know? Is the air pressure important or uh, the water level along the shoreline? It's something which I would recommend every geophysicist who is still uh, studying 
to reflect on, can I learn a little more about the fundamentals? Because one day in my career, I will need the fundamentals, but not the specific geological unit we're standing on. And I'm not the only one, by the way, if, if I may quote Harrison Schmidt about conducting gravity survey on the moon in 1972. That was the last time we did this type of gravity campaign on, on any extraterrestrial planet and moon. He gave a brilliant interview a few months ago. In his interview, they asked him the last question, what would you have done differently in your career? So he, he was a successful astronaut, senator. He, he had everything done. And his answer was, and I, I don't quote properly, I, I just summarize. His answer was, if I could do this again, I would, of course, do it again, but I would learn more physics and math. And the other thing he said, he said, I would train my forearms much more before I go to the moon because he noticed that his forearm muscles were not always strong enough to, to handle all the difficult manual labor on the moon. And he's a geologist. Uh, he's not a geophysicist. And hearing it from a geologist, I think, should convince a lot of people to get back into the fundamental physical principles because it doesn't matter where you apply them to the sun or a little turtle nest along the shore. Mm. I appreciate your insight, Alex, into this special section. We'll link to this special section in, in the show notes for this page. And, and I hope people get excited reading these articles. It's a, it's a pretty unique insight into geophysics in a fun way. So thanks for bringing that energy to this episode. Thanks for having me. And I think this will uh, fly, literally. SEG produces Seismic Sound Off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource and follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.